I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. John Culberson in the 7th Congressional District. When you ask Laura Moser what she stands for, you get a well-worn litany of progressive policy goals. I believe in Medicare for all. I believe it's okay to talk about gun reform the day after a mass shooting. I believe that climate change is not a controversial topic. But Moser was already internet famous. In 2015, her then two-year-old threw a tantrum at the White House. The photo went viral. As a candidate, Moser's taking a big bet on a new kind of campaign one that offers staffers something they're not used to, a shred of dignity. We still are working seven days a week. Um, We do get a morning a week off. It is a huge help for morale. It's a huge help for just not being like the level of exhausted that we usually are. So it's a six and a half day week. Yeah. You work. Yeah, yeah. With your, this this, this, this is a cushy campaign. The line on campaign work is that it has to suck. Some staffers this year are demanding it suck just a little less. This is one of 15 campaigns operating under a union contract negotiated by a new group called the Campaign Workers Guild. Salaried Guild employees get a base pay of $3,000 a month. Hourly employees get $15 an hour. There's a healthcare stipend so staff can buy insurance and a promise to pay for gas and other reimbursements. All of you people here assembled who've worked so hard for this campaign know it's not easy. Why do campaign workers not have this stuff already? Because resources are so finite. Every dollar spent on something other than winning votes is a dollar wasted. So staff are asked to buy into a workplace that's more cult than corporate. To get the win, you must suffer. You're trying to make democracy better, but you're working in a horrible dictatorship. (laughs) Can progressives have success if they change that model? Can progressives have success if they don't change that model? I'd say would be the better question. Times are changing. We're much more aware of, like with the Me Too movement, some of the things that have been going on in workplaces that just aren't acceptable anymore. I don't think that, especially now with this movement kind of taking off and more and more campaigns unionizing, I think that a campaign that's refusing to unionize, I don't know how they're going to succeed against candidates that are sort of like taking that extra step and making sure that they're practicing what they preach. The campaign manager told us she has had to move precious dollars around to cover the cost of union benefits. She called the amount trivial, but other campaigns wouldn't take this chance. More money for campaign staff means less money for campaign ads. Moser is okay with that. We've seen in multiple elections that the campaigns who spend the most on television, for example, often are not the ones who emerge victorious. And so I think having um, staffers who are invested in your campaign and who are being treated um, humanely, I don't see the risk there. And if if you go down because you um, let people take sick days, then that's fine. That's That's a noble way to fall. You know, I think it's obvious to see the surface differences between Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders, but actually you have two very authentic candidates who are themselves on and off camera, who don't waver, you know, and don't seem to bend to popular opinion. And I think especially young people who are so concerned about education, so concerned about climate change, who are concerned with the core messages of Bernie Sanders, who know that they're growing up in the richest country in the world and yet no one seems to have any money. This stuff resonates with young people, resonates with millennials. And so while on the surface, Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders may seem to be very different folks, they are very, very similar. Bernie Sanders doesn't have to tailor his message to any audience. It is just resonating and it's authentic. But if you're talking about my work, we have actually adjusted the aesthetics of our photography and videography, I think, to the current situation. iPhones take great photos and they're very flat and perfect and in focus. And so that's why in our work we really highlight imperfections. If you look at our photographs, we use a lot of lens flare, we have a very gritty feel to them, sometimes they're even a little out of focus. And that, I think, is just to make them stand out against what is just uh, a plethora of media that looks the same online. This is a movement getting the establishment very nervous. Young people are sick of politics as usual. This is why they're sick of establishment politics, establishment economics, 
And when they see all pandering and when they see kind of wishy-washy politics as usual, they're very much repulsed by it. Authenticity is a big currency with young people. It is a campaign about transforming America. Bernie Sanders is the only connection a lot of these young folks you see at these rallies have to politics. And so uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, should she be the nominee, will have her work cut out for her to actually go out and appeal to these folks. They are not naturally hooked into the establishment politics, into the establishment Democratic Party. And to bring them in and to keep them in, she's going to have to find them where they're at and address the issues they care about. chatting with our favorite progressive couple from Texas, Arun Chowdhury and Laura Moser. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having us. Laura, you know from both her recent congressional run in Texas and as the founder of the progressive activist site Daily Action. Her husband, Arun, has the distinction of being the very first White House videographer under the Obama administration, as well as Bernie Sanders' official photographer during his 2016 presidential run. So before we talk about your congressional run, Laura, I wanted to ask you about dailyaction.org. Uh, I know that you are no longer with them, but you are the founder, so you have some insight into the organization. And I think it's a very effective tool to galvanize progressive activism. Tell us a little bit about the site. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of after the um, surprise election of Donald Trump, like many people, I felt really uh, not just terrified, but paralyzed. I didn't know how to be effective. And I, mm-hmm. after months of kind of signing petitions and doing all the things that people in my Facebook feed were telling me to do, I decided that we needed a kind of really curated one thing a day, take one action a day in five minutes and make a difference. And that's kind of how um, Daily Action uh, was born. And I think a lot of other people had that same desire to um, kind of have a streamlined activism activity. And that's why it took off so quickly. Find myself right now, just because of the whole Susan Sarandon debacle this week, I find myself thinking about how, even though that made a lot of people angry that she said what she said, how actually true it is. Having Trump in office, I think, has galvanized a lot of the left into, you know, getting up and trying to do something about the things that they've been complacent about in the past. So unfortunately, as painful as it is, maybe it did take somebody as monstrous as Trump in office for folks to really to be more aware of what's been going on. So well, rather not have him be in office, all things being equal. Oh, yeah. absolutely. That's a given. I'd rather be complacent <laughs> with a different president, but yeah. The push to be, the, the push against the Trump presidency does come somewhat at the expense of the imagination of progressive folks. Because when all of your energy is always put in resistance, then there isn't like the big, bold plans of how we're going to move ourselves forward. And so sometimes I guess one of the worst things about the Trump presidency is that it is galvanizing uh, all this energy, but that he is also the only source of oxygen. And so the only way anything can breathe anymore is through him. And, you know, love him or hate him at the end of the day, think he's uh, you know, an evil genius or, you know, pretty stupid. He is good at that. He is good at funneling the oxygen through himself. You know, I completely agree with you on that. And it's actually, that's one of my biggest frustrations right now is I feel like the entire platform has shifted to this fuck Trump thing, which is not a platform whatsoever, where where we should be focusing on actual policy. You're right. The oxygen's being sucked into this other thing and, they're seeing, and it feels directionless. To me. So I think um, one of our jobs is to get back on course as far as policy is concerned and really focus on on what kind of policy would appeal um, to progressives in the left into winning elections. Because honestly, at this point, there's still so much pain between the fractured parts of the party that we need to heal that. And if we don't, we're looking at another four years of Trump because we can't possibly win an election with just one side. I'm, I'm watching some of the midterm ads and stuff in Texas right now. And I think in the district where I ran, um, there should be a little more focus on Trump because a lot of the people in this district are kind of George H.W. Bush conservatives. They like their tax mm-hmm. cuts, but they're not crazy. And they're still Republicans. And you have but yeah. they love Trump, but they don't really see, they don't equate Ted Cruz with Trump necessarily yeah. or local congressman right, with right. Trump. And that connection, I think, should be drawn, um, and I haven't seen 
obviously the wise Democratic Party knows more than we do, but um, I, they, they haven't <laughs> doing that at all. I'm convinced and, they uh, don't actually. Media. <laughs> They don't know. No, I agree. <laughs> and it's really bad down here in some ways because it's sort of neither fish nor fowl. Like mm-hmm. they're not making, we're not making enough of an attempt to make new Democrats, nor is there an attempt to persuade, uh, you know, anyone who's in the middle. There's just sort of the rallying the base that's there. And it may mm-hmm. be one of the reasons that the blue wave comes up short specifically in Texas as it may perform or even overperform in places like Pennsylvania and California and New York. You know, that's an interesting perspective, and um, I think there's some truth to that. I also think they're ignoring a lot of the underlying data. I, you know, I'm a big believer that Trump is a symptom of a bigger problem that we have in the country, and the income inequality under Trump has gotten much worse than it was at the start of his presidency, and one of the things that he campaigned on was fixing that. So I would like to see Democrats step into that spot, because I think this is an area where we can win votes. I think the idea of Medicare for all, I think the ideas of uh, fixing the income equality and, and walking away from the plutonomy has sway with these folks. And yet they, the DNC and the DCCC don't seem to be grasping onto that. I feel like they're a little bit toned down. Connor Lamb was a great example of someone who ran in, you know, a not particularly blue district on a strong union message and unapologetic. Right. unapologetic. We came out immediately and endorsed Connor Lamb. I think what we've seen in recent years is that the endorsement from union leadership doesn't carry as much weight as it used to. The special election in the heart of steel country is heating up. There are 80,000 labor union members in the 18th district in southwest Pennsylvania. They face a decision between Democrat Connor Lamb and Republican Rick Saccone. Both candidates are on board with Trump's recently announced tariffs, something this district has been waiting for for nearly 30 years. I know there's some feeling that the president lacks compassion or doesn't care. This is what Reaganomics has done right here. They closed my plant where I work. That's when steel workers across the country started losing their jobs by the hundreds of thousands to overseas competition. The tariffs are designed to help bring them back. The president is doing a fantastic job, I feel, under the circumstances. What do you think about this tariff talk. Wow, it's about time we have to do something. You know, there's competition, healthy competition. I can't blame where the steel comes from. At least let us be in the runnings. That's all we can ask for. You support him still today? Yes, I do. So you must be supporting Rick Saccone in this upcoming election no, in your district? <laughs> no, I'm not. You're no, not? No, I'm not. And that's why he ended up here at a Connor Lamb rally thrown by the United Steelworkers Union. This is a city of champions. It is a union city. It's union country that you're in. You need to understand that. The union actually applauds the president on the tariffs, but they're trying to bring people like Ed back over to the Democratic Party. Trump won this district by 20 points. Let's make sure we all get out there on Tuesday and represent and vote for Connor Lamb. A big issue in this race is, is right to work. Connor Lamb, he understands the importance of unions. He understands the importance of uh, workers having a voice in the workplace. We're going to get him out to the polls. We're going to show up to vote. And if we can get that number of union voters as a percentage of the electorate up to about 30% in this race, I, I think he's got a chance to pull the upset. Pro-labor message and yeah. saw that resonate. Saw that resonate strongly with Trump voters. So, you know, I do think it's about what's happening on the ground. It's about actually paying attention. And yeah, talking about issues that people care about. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, so speaking of the DCCC, Laura, I was, I, this is where I first came across you. When they did the opposition, opposition research, I was so dumbfounded and disgusted that I could not, I couldn't fathom that this is what was going on. Uh, I strongly, strongly believe that the DNC and the DCCC should not be putting their thumb on the scale during primary races at all. Let the voters decide, because if you force a candidate onto the voters, you end up losing the race. It's a bad strategy. And that's on top of just the simple idea that why are we attacking each other on the inside? We should be focusing our anger at those that are truly our enemy at the the end of the day. Um, So for you in that experience, did you... Did you see that coming, or did that come as a complete shock as well? And uh, what was your way of handling that? 
Welcome back. Today in Meet the Midterms, the campaign arm for House Democrats did something unique. They're aggressively attacking a candidate in Texas. Now, what's surprising about that? Well, the candidate the Democrats are slamming is a Democrat. The DCCC is picking sides in a high-stakes Texas primary, and they did it in a head-turning way by publicizing negative opposition research about a candidate named Laura Moser. She's a progressive candidate uh, running for the nomination in Texas's 7th House District. That's the Houston area district the Democrats really believe they can win. The information includes Moser saying in 2014 that she would rather have her teeth pulled out without anesthesia would then live in Paris, Texas. In a statement, the DCCC said here that Laura Moser is not going to change Washington. Why does this matter? Well, the DTRIP wants that 7th district in their corner. It's one of 23 Republican-held seats that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. Democratic Party is clearly worried that Moser is perhaps too liberal or too out of touch of Texas to win the seat, so they're trying to squash her candidacy. The amazing thing is that the DCCC put out this information on their own. Instead of maybe leaking it to another candidate or a media outlet or letting the candidates decide whether this is an issue amongst themselves. Well, now it's a national story of an inter-party warfare and could end up totally backfiring on them and further straining the relationship between, say, the establishment and the progressive wing of the party. We'll see what happens here. But this was a head-scratching move at a precarious time. The Texas primary, first week in March. We'll be back with I mean, no, I didn't see it coming. I don't think they've ever done anything that openly evil before. I knew that I was not their preferred candidate. They really, as we know, they like candidates with corporate kind of Wall Street experience yeah. and lots of big donors behind them. Um, so I, I knew that they that I they didn't want me to be the nominee, but um, I thought it was, you know, it was completely shocking. I'm, I am, unlike my darling husband, I'm a very loyal, lifelong Democrat. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And they also put a lot of money into me. They they did they did a tremendous amount of stuff that costs money that could have gone. I mean, there's ten races right. in Texas right now that could flip that are only slightly more Republican than this one and that they've completely ignored and continue to ignore mm -hmm. and leave mm -hmm. for dead. And instead, they're putting resources into defeating uh, a person who believes the same things they claim to believe. You know, right. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, no, it was it was it was bad. And it's why I lost. Um, I mean, I will maintain that. But, but, you know, as you said earlier, I do think that kind of meddling uh, depresses turnout and it's going to yep. make it harder here. You know, you don't tell people Washington shouldn't tell Texas how to vote. And they're still obviously I have very bad feelings lingering about the whole experience. But so do a lot of other people. If one lesson should be learned from 2016, it's this very simple thing. Bullying voters doesn't work. If you bully a voter and try to tell them how they're supposed to think as opposed to trying to earn their vote, they're just not going to vote. I mean, we had, in some of the swing states, we had actual registered Democrats that voted down ballot but didn't vote for president. And I think all of this is part of the same, um, the same problem that we're seeing across the board. And I'm also a little bit worried, like you said, about they're ignoring these other races. This is something that's been going on for quite a while within the party. When they walked away from the 50 straight, the 50 state strategy, it was a problem in my opinion, because local races matter tremendously and state level races matter tremendously. It's the state that gerrymanders the district. So, I mean, we could even look at how we lost so much of the house. Uh, you know, almost a decade. Showing up. And part you of, have to show up. Yeah, that's right. Part of the problem was that we had ignored the state-level races, so they all went Republican, and it was the Republicans that gerrymandered the crap out of all these districts on the state level. So I feel like there's something we should have learned from these things, and I think that that lesson still hasn't been learned by our leadership, and it's very frustrating for me. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think what's really frustrating is that the leadership of the Democratic Party seems really intent on litigating this fight, which is mm -hmm. so counterproductive. So I think you went from, in Lara's race, and you certainly definitely correct me where you think I'm wrong, Lara, but like it went from being more of a contest of ideas in, uh, in which I think we were presenting, you know, a candidate in Lara who was a bridge between uh, Hillary Clinton camp and the Bernie Sanders camp uh, of the party. Right. Um, but forced it out of that by dumping the opposition research, especially in the way that they did. 
and they made it being much about like Bernie people versus Hillary people having it be about that, which is just such a useless thing for mm-hmm. a race to be about and spend a lot of money on. Exactly. So, I mean, even in this past week, we have the situation with Nixon and Cuomo in New York and the whole debacle with, with the mailer that was sent out accusing Cynthia of anti-Semitism, which was just so gross. You know, she, I don't think, I mean, on, on a certain level, you have to at least stop yourself from doing this because you, you might as well be calling her a kappa. She's the mother of Jewish children. It's like, come on, man. How could you be so tone deaf? This is the flyer sent out by the New York Democratic Party over the weekend, less than a week before the primary election. It is scathing and it is harsh. This is what it states. With anti-Semitism and bigotry on the rise, we can't take a chance with inexperienced Cynthia Nixon, who won't stand strong for our Jewish communities. Cynthia Nixon, against funding yeshivas, supports BDS, the racist, xenophobic campaign to boycott Israel, and silent on the rise of anti-Semitism. This is incredibly offensive, and as we saw today uh, with the revelation uh, from the newspapers that this was actually something that came from the Cuomo campaign itself. Today, Nixon fired back. She's challenging Governor Cuomo in the gubernatorial campaign. Nixon, whose children are being raised Jewish, says the Cuomo campaign is behind this. I think uh, Governor Cuomo owes us not only an apology, but he owes us a really strong declaration that not only there was this wrong and that he's sorry, but that it is 100% untrue. The flyer says it was paid for by the New York Democratic Party, but the head of the Democratic Committee said the state party sent out a wrong and inappropriate mailer. Other Democrats, like Councilmember Brad Lander, who has endorsed Nixon, calls it dirty politics. They have made baseless accusations about anti-Semitism, at a time when real anti-Semitism is on the rise. Jewish community leaders denounced the timing of the mailer received on Saturday just before the start of Rosh Hashanah. We have come to unfortunately expect New York state politics to be dirty, but we did not expect this. An attempt to split the Jewish community's vote by spreading lies and stoking real Jewish fears Now, Governor Cuomo has denied knowledge of the flyer, saying it was inappropriate and that he did not approve of it. Corey, back to you. All right, Julie, thank you. But on the flip side, today we had come out that Cuomo's insiders did know that this mailer was going out and they did nothing to stop it. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, there will not be any accountability for someone like Andrew Cuomo. He is the equivalent of our Greg Abbott here in Texas, just an incumbent entrenched candidate who has too much money to lose. And so because there is no accountability, there will be no real blowback from, from the stories about who exactly knew about this disgusting mailer that went out. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's probably not even going to be an issue in the general election. And yeah, it might depress uh, the progressive vote, um, but that's not going to bother Andrew Cuomo at his victory party that much. Although it could maybe dampen his presidential prospects, which is certainly a positive thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, and well, we know we saw the demise of the IDP with this election cycle. Most of them uh, lost their elections, which was good. Then the second row of elections, I think, are extraordinarily important are these IDC challenges. And you can just look these up because I, I, don't, I don't know enough of the details to go into every single one. But essentially, there is a block of Senate Democrats who, over the years, uh, with the guidance of Andrew Cuomo, have caucused with Republicans. There are more Democrats in the Senate, yet... Republicans control the chamber because a handful of these Democratic senators went over and sided with Republicans. And what that does, even if Democrats have the votes for a particular issue, if Republicans don't want to bring it to the floor, they don't bring it to the floor. That benefits Cuomo by being allowed to say, boy, I would really love if we could push that progressive legislation through. Uh, but all shucks, the Republicans just won't put it on the floor. Nothing I can do about it. Uh, under pressure from Cynthia Nixon, they finally dissolved this IDC, but there's no reason they couldn't recreate it again if they're not defeated. Each one. So uh, now they're at that place where maybe they're not going to try to appeal to the Republicans anymore and maybe switch courses in and look at the progressive. No, which Democrats will never. No, the National Democratic Party and the New York Democrats will never reach a point where they stop trying to appeal to Republicans. That is since Bill Clinton. That's all the Democratic Party has ever tried to do, and it's why we've lost over and over again. They'll, they're never going to learn. Maybe, 
you know, maybe as I, as Arun said the other day, maybe once Trump is reelected, they'll think, hmm, maybe trying to get centrists who appealed to Republicans isn't working for, isn't the winning formula we should try. Maybe we should try something else. But mm-hmm. I don't think we're at that point yet with the party. You have to look at the leadership that's in place and overseeing that. And, and you know, I'm, I'm of the belief that fish things from the head down. They've done it to other candidates in subtler ways like recruiting yeah. lifelong Republicans over loyal Democrats to run for these seats. Um, you know, mine was just more on the open, but they're, they're continuing to do it, and they think it's correct, you know, they think mm-hmm. it's awesome. So, How bad their, like, email programs and other digital efforts are amongst people who do those things for a living? Like, it's just something everyone mm-hmm. laughs about, how bad they are at it. Yeah. But, they're, <laughs> you know, they seem proud of that. They're very aware of that. They know they hear the chatter and the conventionalism of the way they do is absolute crap. But there is this mm-hmm. sort of insular culture there. Of, you know, this is the way that we do it. We turn through and no one should change what this is because there is something sacrosanct at the center of this. And so that is massively disproven wrong again. It takes more than one, I think, um, mm-hmm. if it's still be in place. No, and I think that's a fair point. Uh, and let's talk about that. You brought up the DLC. Uh, it's actually amazing to me how many folks are unaware that the DLC ever existed. They they, they seem to be unaware of this. And the, the entire um, reason that they existed was to drive the party to the right. And, um, you know, both the Clintons were a part of that. And they actually, the first round of financing got money from the Koch brothers, which should appall any Democrat, but here we are. So, but I kept thinking that this last election cycle, and I guess maybe not, was enough to galvanize and waken them to the fact that they've they've been going in the wrong direction for, you know, the last few decades. But (laughs) it's human. No, they're doubling down. Right. Yeah, they do seem to be doubling down. That ended up with us having a really, really bad president. And so we're exactly. still in a situation where it is too raw amongst those people to decide if they had a bad campaign, a bad overall strategy, or a bad candidate. One of those mm-hmm. things has to be true, but no, but there is still not actually space for anyone to say that any of those things aren't true uh, without being attacked professionally. And so mm-hmm. there will be no lessons learned because there is a closed kind of, you know, economic circle of rewards that comes from not rocking the boat. Right. No, that's exactly it. It's tied to the money. Uh, so, one, Laura, one of the things that they, the DCCC said about you was that you were a carpetbagger, which kind of made me roll my eyes, um, given how many, how many candidates they've actually put into districts. Like, this is something they've actively done. We've seen it in, uh, in Nevada, for example. So it seemed like a pot meat kettle situation. Uh, how did what did what was your response to that? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's it's like they didn't it, they didn't even try that hard. Like my family has been here since the 1900s. You know, right. no one is more exactly. as, no one is more from a place than I'm from than I am from Houston, Texas. But uh, you know, it's just like they didn't try. And also, one thing I said a lot during the campaign, which I think is true. Is, one out of four people in this uh, county were born in a different country. They're not just not from Houston. They're not from the United States. This is a very diverse, open city, and they, they just needed to try a little harder with that one. Uh, but ultimately, I think that their their attacks were effective because their whole line was, well, she's too, she's too my opponent's line was, she's too out there for her, you know, the Democratic Party, and therefore she can't win. And we just need to elect a safe person, because if we choose mm-hmm. a safe candidate, then they'll win. And that's, again, why Democrats always choose the safer candidates. And those candidates are not usually the ones who we end up calling president. I would argue that they're not even safer. I do see them saying that, but often enough... They're, they're run, not. Yeah, you run a Republican against a Republican, the Republican's going to win. I don't see them safer. And I think the other part of that equation is you have a plurality of voters that are now galvanized behind this idea of Medicare, Medicare for all. And that includes Republicans. It's, you know, it's 70% total. Yes. It's not quite the majority of Republicans, but it is approaching 50%. So I think they could start winning elections if they sort of um, jettison this idea that they're, they're married to the, the business side of the Republican party and make an appeal to the working class individuals um, in the middle of the country that are hurting. It's the first love. Medicare for all is a conversation you can have in any diner anywhere in this country, and people will want to listen to it. 
that is my personal experience of having been on, you know, zillions of these campaigns. So, Laura, you're uh, working on a book currently. Can you tell us anything about that, or is that something that's going to come out a little bit later? Sure. I'm not saying a ton about it right now, but it's, it's a fictional um, uh, political novel, I will say. Oh, fictional. Primary <laughs> Colors of 2018. Wag the Dog, which is one of my favorite um, fictional pieces. Um Let's talk a little bit about um, your experiences with being a videographer with Obama. Uh, when he first put his threw his hat in the ring, uh, I knew something special was happening. I thought, uh, wow, this guy is amazing, you know, and he's such a great um, speaker, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any fun stories of being on the road with him? Well, I mean, yeah, uh, many. And he is with someone who was really terrific to work for. Uh, he, number one, lets you do your thing, you know, was really trusting with those of us who had cameras, especially with video cameras, and was always himself, so there really weren't a lot of rules about what, could, what we could film and what we couldn't film. Um, mm-hmm. But I would say some of the funniest things that would happen on the campaign show specifically would be when you would sort of get yourselves into trouble. And one of those right. times <laughs> that we were in um, at Indiana University on, like, you know, every college has that day near the end of the year where for some reason everyone's allowed to drink and then things happen and yeah. maybe you're on a hill yeah. or you're in a valley or you're in a certain, you know what I mean? There's like some theme around it. Um, yeah, yeah. In Indiana, they have this crazy bike race, but there aren't really bikes, but I don't, I don't remember what happens, but everyone's drunk and we went to the bike race and then someone was like, um, the senator really has to go. Uh, I don't remember that the name was Nikki's. That was the name of like the bar. So it's Nikki's in Bloomington, Indiana. And this is like a dive bar. And you can see Secret Service looking at it like there is no way. Uh, and so, like, you get him in, but like a lobster trap, everyone comes in around you. And mm-hmm. then there was no way to get him out. And so, <laughs> <laughs> Secret Service agent, like, the president, I mean, sorry, I mean, the senator then, having a perfectly lovely time and, you know, sampling the local whatevers and talking to people in this really crowded bar situation. But Secret Service, like, yelling into, like, walkie-talkies and looking very nervous and, like, pushing. Right drunk frat boys out of doorways and stuff. And it was just sort of, it was always, it was always Beatlemania like that on the 2008 trail. Beatlemania is a a great way to describe that. Um, So, you know, after his post his presidency, I know for me, there were some things that he didn't deliver on that I was really disappointed about. Um, Speak, you know, I think the ACA did a lot of great stuff for the country. We got rid of the pre-existing conditions, um, you know, extended the age that kids could stay on their parents' plans. It did do a lot of good work. But I was, at the same time, I was a little bit disappointed that he didn't push for the public mm-hmm. because he had campaigned, um, you know, he had made a speech to the FALCIO back in um, 2003 where he, he made an entire pitch for single payer. And back in 2003, nobody was talking about single payer. Well, Bernie Sanders was, I suppose. But, uh, you know, not at the level on the national stage where people would actually listen So, you know, and then flash forward, the public option went away. Then it became we were never interested in single pay. Like, there was this whole digression. Um, How do you feel about that? Skipping away of an idea. Yeah. To something that was barely satisfactory. And into something that is also, quite frankly, is like a sitting duck when it comes to Republicans trying to make mischief with it because it doesn't have these protections and mechanisms in it. Uh, Right. And, like, look, I think the things you saw be really successfully progressive uh, in the uh, in the Obama presidency or when he put together himself in a supporting cast and sort of had the chorus, even the chorus of opposition, you know, whether it be people pushing him from the left, kind of working in harmony. I think you really saw that happen on things like gay marriage. Uh, but when it came to the Health Care Act, the sort of cast of characters, whether it was, probably, you know, folks from the insurance industry who are not necessarily the best, but who, you know, you have to right. invite someone in the room. Or like Max Bacchus and, let's be honest, Joe Lieberman and some of these other Democrats who are like terrible, terrible Democrats. With us now, Senator Joe Lieberman of Connecticut. Uh, You just heard uh, the White House top advisor on such things saying that it is likely that both the House and Senate will finally come up with some kind of a health care bill that has some sort of public option in it. What's your take? Uh, I hope not. Um, In other words, uh, I'm all for health care reform. Um, We have a system that needs fixing, but we've got some more urgent problems than that. And the first most urgent is to fix our economy, to get it creating jobs again. And I think that a public option will actually hurt 
uh, the economic recovery and our long-term uh, fiscal situation because it will end up causing the government to raise taxes, will probably raise premiums, or it will put us further into debt. You know, the public option came out of nowhere. If you look at last year's presidential campaign, Bob, no mention of it. The goal has always been two goals. One is make health insurance more affordable, and two, extend it uh, to people who don't have it now. Um, yeah. Having them on the team sort of meant, you know, ended up meaning that these things got deflated. Obama, while he is a charismatic person putting that together, that team, it, it, I think it is hard even from the top to when you have the inertia of the people on your team chipping away at the project to actually have it come in. So this is not to deflect things down and the buck stops where the buck stops. But like, I think the biggest regrets would be in some of the supporting cast that we empowered uh, in the Obama administration to sort of be point on this, specifically legislatively. As much as we have problems, you know, uh, with decisions Nancy Pelosi may have made, like, you know, in this election and stuff, ain't none of this stuff would have happened if Nancy Pelosi was the Senate majority leader, right? It sort of is a rock and a hard place. Um, I guess, you know, I guess uh, that's, it's, it's a stepping stone on the way to get where we're at. And I think uh, this last election cycle certainly brought Medicare for all farther along. I, I think Bernie Sanders was able to, for, for whatever reason, he was able to uh, bring that to the forefront of the conversation. And I think that young millennials are able to embrace this idea and they don't hear, you know, part of the problem is my generation hears the word socialism and they think it's the KGB goose stepping or something. You know, I have a master's in philosophy, so I don't hear socialism and think that I think, you know, I think about Adam Smith or I think about, um, Chomsky or a host of other things. So uh, I think you can go back and look at FDR and the way he used messaging uh, because he, he shied away from using the term socialist because he knew at the end of the day, if he used that word, people would not listen to anything he had to say. So he intentionally shifted to this idea of liberal, even though liberal means laissez-faire, economic small government. It's really not what it is. The, the New Deal was definitely a socialist policy. So now uh, you and I, you and, and I are both film people so that do politics. So we have this um, background in creativity. And I think what's interesting about some of the things you're working on is you're encompassing creativity into the messaging work that you do. So, uh, and I think it's important that messaging is authentic and not propaganda. I think that's how we get people on board. So what would you do yeah. to change the current messaging um, around this idea of socialism being, you know, KGB, Russian bloc? Like, how could we change this messaging and really get at to what we're discussing here? Is there is there a way to do that or is that just a lost cause? Uh, is there a way to do that? Yes. And I think you're right. Some of the messaging uh, maybe has to be changed around. But this is, to me, more of a show, don't tell situation. And I think folks, whether it's the DSA and, and other folks who are on the left um, doing a lot more uh, community service projects and, you know, there was in Houston, they were fixing taillights in Northeast Houston, which is a predominantly black part of Houston. Uh, mm -hmm. And being indispensable in communities that need help is the best way to show right. people what socialism means. It means cooperation. Ah. It, means democracy. Yeah, yeah. it means democracy in our economy. And, and this is what it is. And sometimes I worry um, that some of our small victories uh, as social Democrats, whether that be, uh, you know, Alexandria Ocasio, um, some other folks, kind of gets everyone gets election fever, right? And everybody wants to have yeah. a socialist <laughs> on their city council and on their PTA, and that's awesome. But let's not forget about free lunch for kids who need it. Let's not forget about suits for people getting out of jail. Let's show the right. community that we're the people who give a crap. Right. You know, I think that's a that's a fair way to look at it. It's, it's a show me situation versus a try to lecture people on what words actually mean. I think that makes sense at this point. Laura, I wanted to discuss Emily's list for a second. Uh, I'm a big I'm a big believer. We had something here in California, in fact, called California List that was looking to um, fund women in politics. But I'm feeling like Emily's list has sort of gone off in the wrong direction. Um, they have a consistent history right now of backing away from progressives and choosing wealthy corporate candidates over progressive women in races where there's two women. And I don't really think you can be the champion of, champion of women if this is what you're doing. Um, what Do you have any heart, uh, strong feelings about Emily's list? 
I'm not, I'm not into them. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like, again, I said, there's, there's so many strong female candidates. My great friend, Jana Sanchez and uh, Texas six, Dana Steele and Texas 36 who have received nothing from Emily's list. Um, and meanwhile, they spent $300,000 to take me out. Emily's list weighs in hard in Texas primary against a leading woman in the Trump resistance by Ryan Grimm. Emily's list is dumping big money into an upcoming Democratic primary in Texas's 7th Congressional District, pitting the women's group against a pro-choice woman who was, in the months after the election of Donald Trump, a face of the resistance. Laura Moser, as creator of the popular text messaging program Daily Action, gave hundreds of thousands of despondent progressives a single political action to take each day. Her project was emblematic of the new energy forming around the movement against Trump, led primarily by women and often by moms. Moser is both. It was those types of activists that Emily's List spent 2017 encouraging to make first-time bids for office. But that doesn't mean Emily's List will get behind them. Also running is Lizzie Panel Fletcher, a corporate lawyer who is backed by Houston megadonor Sherry Murfish. That, if I were like a wealthy, elderly Emily's List donor who was trying to elect women to politics, I would not think that was the best use of my donation, you know, exactly. and yeah, they, they have, it's very similar to the DCCC. It's a donor, um, you know, they care about their donors and not about the policies that they claim, you know, if really they're interested in electing pro-choice um, women, they shouldn't hit them against each other by, by putting so much money behind one. And, and again, they've done that in lots of other races as well. Um, and it has become a theme and people have noticed. Uh, but there is a certain um, genre of Emily's List donor who's about my mother's age and remembers the first year of the woman in 1992 when Emily's List did play a fundamental, you know, important role in getting more women, you know, on the Senate after Anita Hill. And um, but, but their relevance has passed and it's their own mm-hmm. doing. Because there's more need than ever. I mean, we're seeing it this week um, on Capitol Hill with the cabinet hearings. We need more women in government, but we need progressive women. And we need women who are actual fighters, not women who are, you know, um, the same same old, same old. Yeah, no, I concur with that. Um, I've been a little bit disappointed with the choices they've made. And, you know, again, I feel this is similar to the DCCC putting their thumb on the scale in a a Well, they're the same organization. Like, let's be very clear. It's the exact yeah, same okay. um, consultants. It's the same. It's it's a revolving door. You know, they are indistinguishable, mm-hmm. and that's the problem with Emily's List. Emily's List should be an independent organization making its own determination. They should not be in hoc to the Demo- you know to the DCCC or to any other Democratic you know official organization. They need to be their own organization making their own determinations. But it's the same. You know, it's the same donors, the same choices of candidates, and. That's problematic, and I think that there really needs to be a, a progressive alternative to groups like that. And, um, uh, and yeah. you know, like Justice Democrats who run this mention Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like uh, I'm excited about these new groups that are trying to create an infrastructure for the left because we don't have it. Like once the Democratic Party decides that they – don't want you to win the nomination. They have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that they can just throw, you know, down the toilet. And we on the left don't have that yet. But I think one of the um, encouraging things about the post 2013 landscape is that we're trying to build that landscape. Um, and mm-hmm. part of it, part of it is is saying Emily's list. You're, you know, time to move on. There, there needs to be groups that are actually yeah. trying to help progressive women. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, and I think people get a little bit confused about the role that nonprofits uh, in this whole entire conversation. You know, I was a public policy director for a nonprofit organization, and I saw it firsthand. Nonprofit organizations can be as guilty of revolving door politics, of um, of quid pro quo, 
as any corporation can be. So I think um, they tend to be viewed as less nefarious simply because they're nonprofits. But they too engage in this sort of stuff, and um, you know, and I think. I think some of the other obvious examples of that are some of the environmental groups that came out during this last primary, and they endorsed Hillary Clinton, who was very much pro-fracking and um, not entirely environmentally friendly. I think Bernie was a much more green candidate. So, you know, again, why would they do that? Why would they pick the le- the person that's less in line with their policy platform during a primary? Well, because I think they thought she was safe. I think it's the same sort of thing that the DNC is doing. They think these folks are safe and they're not really looking at the bigger picture and taking the, taking what they see as a perceived risk. So, um, I think, right. right. I'm glad that we have, we're, we do lack, we lack some infrastructure here in our progressive movement. I think it's starting to come online and I think that that will be helpful. Um, so, Laura, what advice would you give to current progressive candidates that are facing some of the, the problems that you faced during your uh, election? Do you have any words of advice? Uh, that's a good question. I usually get asked what I would say to, to people, particularly women, thinking about running for office. And I have only the most cynical answer, which is like, you know, think <laughs> twice. But, uh um, because it's brutal. But if you're already running, I would say just continue, you know. As, as as AOC said, like they've got, we've got the people, they've got the money, like get your people out mm-hmm. um, and get them excited and get them voting. Because in a place like Texas, the only thing that matters is turning voters out. And Beto is doing a great job of getting new people to show up, but we need like a thousand Betos and we don't have them. So if you're running in a race and you're progressive, like get the disenfranchised people, get the high school students, get the people who've never shown up because it hasn't mattered and get them to get five more people to vote and and then tell them to run for something themselves. You know, that's the only way things are going to change. That's a really, I think, solid advice. Um, so revolution messaging um, is trying to sort of change the way that this stuff is handled. What are some of the initiatives that you guys are working on over there? Well, I mean, what it always comes down to is, is never like, and we always really upfront with all the people we work with, it's never going to be secret sauce, right? And it's what you said earlier. It's about presenting message authentically, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's funny because a lot of the things that kind of, I think, and I like to think that we introduced and perfected, especially along the lines of the videos and the graphics and having message be first. And I think you saw a lot of that with the work we've done with Move On or with Bernie, um, kind of, you know, really baking things into the cake everybody's doing that now and it sort of is, it, it is great, but it's sort of people, it's sort of the industrialization of it and the kind of not flowing authentically from what's actually happening or who your actual candidate is, is becoming okay. more of a problem, right? Like you see sort of a, um, I was actually talking to a friend recently about this and she was calling, you know, me out on this stuff. Uh, <laughs> Kat from people for Bernie, who you probably know. Uh, and she was yeah. like, there's a fetishization around narrative now. And it's like, you know, people like use fault. And that's absolutely true. But I think it's because people don't understand. And I think this is more what we're trying to reinforce now, especially as we're working with candidates and campaigns, um, is that a narrative is a transformation that you undergo over time. And it's something that you're doing. It's not, it's not biography. It's not destiny, right? This is, you're not an Olympic athlete. Mm-hmm. It's not Bob Cox describing your background, right? It is. And so we get into these fights about who's from where and who's seen what and who's been. And that's not what it's about. Like the narrative, the things that we should be drawing all this stuff from is what the plan and action is and how that draws from things that you've done and that transformation mm-hmm. over time. It's not this biographic destiny thing. And so I think really sort of reinforcing the idea of that kind of discipline. And also, uh, you know, we are someone, we swim in, in the tech world and, you know, it's all data and things doubling down. And I think we're also a voice for, humanity inside of that and to take a step back and to ask the bigger questions, you know, not is the 15 second ad better than the 30 second ad, but is there a reason to have an ad at all? You know, just slowing down uh, to ask those bigger questions. And the other thing I think that we do that's smart is we have uh, artists, you know, people who are actually artists and communicators and filmmakers sit at the table with the candidates and with campaign managers and not Mm -hmm. sort of have them through a huge membrane of consultants by which, you know, everyone sort of pecks away at good <laughs> ideas that they're dead and collects their 5%. Right, right. So I would imagine um, social media is, is can be really great and can be really not effective, meaning that um, 
it's if you you can have a very large following on Twitter, but if they're not in the area that you're running your race in, it's not necessarily all that. And good. Yeah, how do you get around that? Number one, you have to constantly show up in real life. Uh, two things, right. and also this is about segmenting your list in a smart way, right? You need to talk to the folks who are from your community in a different way than you talk to the folks nationally, in which you are maybe part of a big broader conversation. Maybe you are weighing in on issues. But actually locally, people want to know, you know, people want to know that you're showing up. And so your social mm-hmm. media should be helping you boost when you do show up and helping you show up when you can't physically show up. You know, there's ways mm-hmm. that you can boost an activity being done by a local group that doesn't have the same doesn't have the same boost that you do and they're going to be grateful and like that's going to be helpful and that's just sort of making your movement bigger and making your association bigger and so I, I think really having a bottom-up uh, approach to social media making sure you're being really diligent about tagging things very locally right if your candidate shows up at a certain store tag the store because the people who work at the store are stoked you came in and like it was an interesting right. part of their day and so just you know using social media as a way to be there to be present uh whether it is amplifying a thing you actually did or a place that you couldn't actually be. And, and I think it, it, it's so important. And it's hard all the time because there's a new algorithm every week and now Facebook Live doesn't go out to as many people as it used to. So would we tell Beto O'Rourke to like use Facebook Live? Not necessarily if it started today, you know? So like you mm-hmm. never know uh, what the new thing is. Snapchat's still big. Guess what? Everybody will be gone. Like, you know, it's yeah. not about the platform. <laughs> Everything you do should be platform agnostic and the platforms are just tunnels to get to people. You want to get to people, as many people as you can, with the same message as you can. I'll just add that, like, the DCCC and organizations like that have not moved on. They still think that people only watch network television because guess what? That's, like, where the most money is. And I don't watch network television. I'm not that old, you know. Um, right. And as Ron says, you have to move with the platforms, but that is not – the Democratic Party is way, way, way behind the Republicans. Um, we turned on a Hulu movie the other night and like our Republican congressman like gave, you know, we saw like three ads for him over the course of this movie. And I don't think any Democratic candidate has done that. And that's a lot cheaper than network TV. But it's just we're kind of behind yeah. the ball. Behind the ball. In fact, I was noticing there's a couple of documentaries that are coming up, um, coming out on corruption within uh, the system one of them is on facebook and it's getting a ton of hits on these episodes the the swamp i don't know if you've watched this so how does it feel being back in dc the swamp (laughs) yeah The swamp is uh, geographically uh, Washington D.C., uh, but um, in in a, a metaphysical sense, it's it's just a place where uh, values change. And there's another one coming out, but they're both um, looking at Republican candidates, not Democrats. This, so these are these are narratives that are are within within the the Republican side. Why aren't we doing this? We're supposed to be the ones fighting corruption, and yet. I mean, you know, let's be honest. Trump didn't drain the swamp. He made it swampier. So If you don't tell the story, nobody knows. Yeah, well, exactly. So and I like that you use the term platform agnostic because I think that's actually um, that's very true. It's about the messaging and they need to focus on that and not, you know, which is interesting. We've seen in the last uh, between the Obama presidency and Bernie Sanders run. We saw two things. I think we saw candidates effectively using the internet, social media, all of these things to get their messaging out, which is actually much more economically efficient than the old school way of network um, television ads. But we also saw the other side of it that I don't think gets discussed enough is the fundraising side. Both um, Organizing for America and Sanders campaigns did something that changed the narrative in this area. They went directly to the individual yeah, low dollar. Yeah, and they did it very, very effectively. You know, one of the one of the outcomes of that is that the DNC has less money. Um, but I sort of feel like they did that to themselves. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, and I, I will also say uh, one thing I did in my campaign, and you know, talking about how Twitter and stuff doesn't matter if that's not where the voters are. Well, I raised forty three thousand dollars from one Twitter post, and like nice. I'm not rich. I don't know that many rich people. That was a lot of money for me. That was, you know, a really effective way for me. I mean, it was obviously also lucky, and I wrote a thread that 
people connected with and stuff. But um, mm-hmm. you should, if you're not using these platforms to try to build, you, you know, and I, Aran and I talk about this a lot. Um, we're never going to win the money game anyway. Like we're just not the Koch brothers. Like Democrats have, you know, there's more dark money than we can keep up with. But I do, I still think like getting more people on your email list on board, making phone calls for you, giving you $5, I think it helps. Like, If you look at, you know, it is true and it's interesting to me because if you look at a lot of the congressional races, a lot of the fundraising is coming from outside of the district and it's not entirely all corporate large donations. This is individual donors. And I think um, that's sort of part of what you're discussing here. I think people that are committed to a certain platform and want to see that platform enacted are willing to give money to races where they're not necessarily directly affected because it's not their senator. But they are effective in the bigger picture because they realize putting progressives into these spots helps the entire cause across the board. So um, I think it's something that these candidates should embrace. But I'm, I'm also worried about the fact that it doesn't necessarily translate into votes. We've seen, you know, many candidates with these huge platforms on Twitter that have not been able to connect with all. The yeah, people. it definitely doesn't translate into votes, but it's still kind of one tool in the in the box. So what are your predictions for the 2018 um, races? We're coming up on our midterms here, and I'm a little bit worried. I think we, I think we are going to win a lot of House seats. Um, I think we are going to persevere in many elections, but I'm also a little bit concerned about some of the tone deafness I'm still seeing out there. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you think we're going to be able to get a plurality of seats this time around or no? Um, I think it really depends um, uh, on the week, you know, on what crisis is happening that week in Trump's America. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the week, <laughs> for example, when Kavanaugh first started testifying and everyone was so fired up and getting thrown out of, you know, the hearings. And um, that week, if the election had been the day after that, I think the Democrats would have done well. Last week, the Democrats probably wouldn't have done as well because the sense of Crisis had subsided a little. Uh, we weren't mm-hmm. feeling quite as desperate as a country, and so. And I, but I think it's very dangerous to have that determine whether we win or lose. Just kind of what's in the water that week, you know. And again, yeah. I think that the the blue wave is not going to be a blue wave unless we have a base that's showing up and excited. And I think in lots of races, um, we fail to pick candidates that that will get the base out. So. But I really think you don't know. There's going to be lots of October surprises. We don't know how bad they will be. We just won't know until mm-hmm. the week before. I mean, we didn't know that, like, Comey was going to reopen his investigation 10 days before that. You just never know. But I think mm-hmm. I don't feel confident that the Democrats have built a deep enough, pow- powerful enough bench to kind mm-hmm. of withstand Trump. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think there is a, yeah. that the Trump factor puts a lot of volatility into what's happening that week and that day, and that's scary. Uh, the, my mm-hmm. general feeling is that there is going to be, you know, and I'm, I'm not crazy about the metaphor, but there is going to be a blue wave. Uh, and I think places where there's the where there's the buckets, where there's the infrastructure to hold the water, that's going to be great. Mm-hmm. And those are going to be places that are traditionally Democratic places, like Pennsylvania, like uh, New York, and like California. And then, unfortunately, places like Texas, where they don't have the infrastructure to have the buckets, the wave is going to come, but we're not going to get to keep any of the water. And that's why it's so critical to invest all states at all times. You know, that's right. a really good metaphor, actually. Um, you know, and that makes me think, are you following the Florida governor race at all? With Andrew? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks, Andrew has shifted his messaging. Uh, so he had campaigned in the primary on Medicare for All, and he was absolutely unapologetic about it, which was fantastic. But now all of a sudden, he keeps saying affordable health care. And I couldn't help but notice that his comms manager used to be Debbie Wasserman Schultz's comms manager. And I'm wondering if there's a bit of I was going to say, the problem is he can, he can afford professional <laughs> help now. That's the problem. He can now afford the kind of consultants that are giving him the bad advice. So yeah. That's who you have to hire, the second cheapest consultant, just like a bottle of wine at dinner. I love your analogies. Yes, that's exactly right. So I noticed that. The message changed. You're screwing up, Andrew. What are you thinking? The reason you're in the position you're in is because you were unapologetic about this issue, and now you're going to back away from it. It's just a bad move. I agree. What do you? Yeah. What do you think is going to happen there? 
Do you think he'll wake up? To oh, I walk think away? you know he's he's in the flush of having won the primary. I think give I think give uh, give him a couple of weeks to let Gillum be Gillum, uh, and I think he'll be back out there. He seems like a really terrific uh, human being and a mm-hmm. terrific politician. You know, even and somebody who really is going to stick his neck out for people. And I think I think yeah. people are going to like what they look when they see it. It's an incredibly hard state, uh, not in terms of its not just in terms of its diversity and craziness from north to south Florida, but actually in terms of its geographic breadth. It's one of the few gubernatorial races where you have to be on a plane to actually get it done. Yeah. Like, these things yeah. cost a lot of money. So it's, it's hard. But it's not, you know, he, it's, it's going to be an uphill climb, but I think if anyone out there can do it, it is Andrew. Yeah, I, I really like that Ron DeSantis is insane. Like, he's not just, like, a regular yeah. Republican. He's actually no, crazy. He's horrible. So that, <laughs> and Gillum yeah. got out his base. He got his you know, people to vote. Like he got young people and new people and that's really important. And if he can do that again, then, then, you know, people always say, Oh, this is the new model for what Democrats are, you know, need to do. But if, if he does win, then like we should learn from that. And I'm, I'm pretty, I'm optimistic. I am too. I just um, was, I've noticed this sharp change in messaging. I, I noticed who the new comms person was. And then I've been watching the backlash that he's been receiving from those same millennial voters that put him into the position he's in now. So I'm just hoping that this doesn't get messed up because I do think um, Andrew's a great guy. Um, I think he's a talented um, politician and it would be, it would just be unfortunate that his ear got, you know, he lent his ear to the wrong faction of the party and took their advice and it was just the wrong advice. So. Right. You, swallow stuff. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, no, don't do it. <laughs> Stick with what you know. That's what got you there. Um, so uh, I wanted to also come back around and talk about this show up and excited thing. I think, uh, Laura, what you said was correct. The left has, um, they don't show up for voting unless they're excited about the candidate. It's that simple. They'll stay home. I mean, we can we can bully voters all day long and say they need to vote and, and berate them and, and shame them, but it will get us absolutely nowhere. That's This is a democracy. This is what we need to work with. So I think it's really important that we run um, really exciting candidates that voters are engaged in. And the way you do that is by not, not to repeat myself, but the way you do that is by not putting your thumb on the scale during a primary. You let the voters decide who they want and they're going to show up in the general. So, but at the same time, I think we have a really bad problem on in the Democratic Party and on the left in general where voters don't come out and vote in the primaries. I've noticed that the turnouts across the board in uh, just about every state, the, the voter turnout's really, really low. It's much lower than the primaries. And I think the primary election is far more important than the general election if you're a progressive because getting our person into that general in the first place is everything. So um, have you noticed this? What are your thoughts on it? Is there a way to fix it? Look, it costs money uh, to get out there into the community and to professionally organize and bring people around to do the thing that Barack Obama did in Chicago, to do the thing that right. Avenger Cortez did in the Bronx. Like, and part of it is just, look, politics is a game. Like, look, my wife is dealing with campaign debt right now, right? Like, it's no joke, like, mm-hmm. how all the money works, like, in, in all these things. I can say it's my campaign debt, too. I don't think about it that way. I think about it as your debt, Laura. Uh, you know, like, mm-hmm. my school Yeah, we're, mine, we're both on the hook. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Uh, Right. It's about you can't do everything you want to do. And so what people need to have to do is a discipline to say, I am not going to spend money on this because I am going to spend money on organizing new voters in the district. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that burden should fall on candidates who actually are trying to spend money getting their message out and doing other things that people don't realize cost money. So many more of these local organizations need to actually spend their money, not on themselves volunteering, but on hiring real organizers to be part of their team to help organize their community. It's not maybe as fun as like hosting the candidates debate or like, you know, it's not as good Mm -hmm. on social media. It doesn't look as good in our kind of modern, uh, you know, self-care call out culture, whatever it is online. But it's actually like the hard work that needs to be done and where the resources have to go. The Koch brothers are putting plenty of money into this kind of thing. So who's going to do it on our side? And if we don't all step up, I'm sorry, they're the ones with the cash. And that's what that's it right. takes. What is your general thoughts on paid canvassing? It seems to me that this is a form of astroturfing. I know everybody does it, 
but is it is it because there's a lack of uh, volunteers available to get the word out and this is the only alternative? Like, what's the history of that? You know, I think paid canvassing, I spoke to Wendy Davis, you know, who ran for governor in 2014 here. And she was like, you know, you should put all your money to digital and paid canvassing. And we had paid canvassers and they were for the most part, obviously it's a smaller scale thing, but they were people Mm -hmm. who already supported me, whose politics aligned with mine, who were working hard. And it was, it was, you know, opportunity to give them a $15 an hour job. But I do think it's something that's interesting, not just with um, with paid canvassing, but also on, online with the kind of distributed model, which is becoming more and more popular and was popularized with Bernie and which does work kind of on a national level. But like sending folks in to do things from a national level to a local level, there is this loss that Laura is describing where it's like, look, anyone who she ran into and wanted to do this was going to be a supporter who was into her platform. That's not necessarily the case uh, on larger races. And then you have right, a kind right. Of special class who does it now and these are good people these are people on the left talking about but when you fly Mm -hmm. all the way across the country to do that kind of work you are leaving something major behind which is the connections and the relationships yeah you know okay so that makes sense to me i do understand how um how laura you're talking about these are folks that were already going to come in and do that and this is just giving them some money for their time. I don't have a problem with that, but it's sort of like when you get into states as large as California, you sort of get into these areas where it's become something other than what it's intended to be. And I worry about that because I feel like... But it's now bad vibes and you're going to get bad yeah. vibes back because you have like solid people who don't care about what they're doing and it just doesn't work that way. Exactly. I think it could backfire on, on uh, you know, a lot of levels. And I don't really, I, I honestly, I, get, I think the DNC, the DCCC, etc., I think they get to the point where they don't really think that stuff through. 